Thanks, Ryan. Uh, you've like got my CV memorized. That's amazing. Uh, it's great to be back here um, and to reconnect with people uh, in this really extraordinary place. Um, I'm going to read some poems from my phone because I forgot my book. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'll, I might text some people too while I'm at it. Uh, and I'll get you out of here in half an hour. Okay, how do I do this? <laughs> they don't have phones. Uh, <clears throat> okay. I'm about to begin a psalm that I know. Before I begin, my expectation extends over the entire psalm. Once I begin, the words I have said remove themselves from expectation and are now held in memory, while those yet to be said remain waiting in expectation. The present is a word for only those words which I am now saying. As I speak, the present moves across the length of the psalm, which I mark for you with my finger in the psalm book. The psalm is written in India ink, the oldest ink known to mankind. Every ink is made up of a color and a vehicle. With India ink, the color is carbon and the vehicle, water. Life on our planet is also composed of carbon and water. In the history of ink, which is rapidly coming to an end, the ancient world turns from the use of India ink to adopt sepia. Sepia is made from the octopus, the squid, and the cuttlefish. One curious property of the cuttlefish is that, once dead, its body begins to glow. This mild phosphorescence reaches its greatest intensity a few days after death, then ebbs away as the body decays. You can read by this light. So that, that poem is called uh, Corruption, and um, it's made by kind of adapting or corrupting language from other writers, including uh, St. Augustine and, and the German writer uh, W.G. Sebald, um, who I've talked to some of you guys about this week. Uh, <clears throat> this is a poem called uh, Fundamentals of Esperanto. I wrote it when I was um, living abroad um, and in a country where I didn't speak the language and had no friends. Uh, I mean, I have no friends in most countries, <laughs> including this one. But uh, uh, so, you know, I got kind of very interested in a communication. And so, you know, Esperanto. And, you know, the great thing about this poem, the one, one great thing about this poem is that you'll all be uh, fluent in Esperanto by the time the poem is over. Fundamentals of Esperanto. One, the grammatical rules of this language can be learned in one sitting. Nouns have no gender and end in O. The plural terminates in OJ, pronounced OI, and the accusative ON, plural OIN. Amico, friend. Amicoi, friends. Amicon and Amicoin, accusative friend and friends. 
Adjectives end in A and take plural and accusative endings to agree with things. Ma amico is my friend. All verbs are regular and have only one form for each tense or mood. They are not altered for person or number. Mi havas bonaina mi coin is simply to say, I have good friends. Adverbs end in E. La bonai amico estas ie. The good friend is here. Two. A new book appears in Esperanto every week. Radio stations in Europe, the United States, China, Russia, and Brazil broadcast in Esperanto, as does Vatican Radio. In 1959, UNESCO declared the International Federation of Esperanto Speakers to be in accord with its mission and granted this body consultative status. The youth branch of the International Federation of Esperanto Speakers, UTA, has offices in 80 different countries and organizes social events where young people curious about the movement may dance to recordings by Esperanto artists, enjoy complimentary soft drinks, and take home Esperanto versions of major literary works, including the Old Testament and A Midsummer Night's Dream. William Shatner's first feature-length vehicle was a horror film shot entirely in Esperanto. It's awesome. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, that was an aside. Esperanto is among the languages currently sailing into deep space on board the Voyager spacecraft. Three. Esperanto is an artificial language constructed in 1887 by L.L. Zamenhof, a Polish oculist. I first came across Fundamento Esperanto, the text which introduced the system to the world, as I traveled abroad following a somewhat difficult period in my life. It was twilight and snowing on the railway platform just outside Warsaw, where I had missed my connection. A man in a crumpled tracksuit and dark glasses pushed a cart piled high with ripped and weathered volumes, sex manuals, detective stories, yellowing musical scores and outdated physics textbooks, old copies of Life, New Smut, an atlas translated, a grammar, the mirror, Soviet bloc comics, a guide to the rivers and mountains, thesauri, inscrutable musical scores and mimeographed physics books, defective stories, obsolete sex manuals, one of which caught my notice. Dr. Esperanto, Zamenhof's pen name, translates as he who hopes. And since I had time, I traded my used leaves of grass for a copy. Four. Mi amas fin, bella amico. I'm afraid I'll never be lonely enough. There's a man from Quebec in my head, a friend to the Purple Martins. Purple Martins are the Cadillac of swallows. All Purple Martins are dying or dead. Brain scans of grown Purple Martins suggest these creatures feel the same levels of doubt and bliss as an eight-year-old girl in captivity. While driving home from the brewery one night, this man from Quebec heard a radio program about Purple Martins, and the next day he set out to build them a house in his own backyard. I've never built anything, let alone a house, not to mention a home for somebody else.
I've never unrolled a blueprint onto a workbench, sunk a post, or sent the neighbor's kid pedaling off to the store for a bag full of nails. I've never waited 10 years for a swallow. Never put in aluminum floors to smooth over the waiting. Never piped sugar water through colored tubes to each empty nest lined with newspaper shredded with strong, tired hands. Never dismantled the entire affair and put it back together again. Still no swallows. I never installed the big light that stays on through the night to keep owls away. Never installed lesser lights. Never rested on Sunday with a beer on the deck, surveying what I had done and what yet remained to be done, listening to sticks while the neighbor kids ran through my sprinklers. I've never collapsed and abandoned. Never prayed. But enough about Purple Martins. Five. As we speak, Esperanto is being corrupted by upstart languages, such as interlingua, Klingon, Java, and various cryptophasic tongues. Our only hope of reversing this trend is to write the Esperanto epic. Through its grandeur and homegrown humility, it will spur men to freeze the mutating patois so the children of our children's children may dwell in this song and find comfort in its true texture and frame. It's worth a try. As I imagine it, it ends in the middle of things. Every line of the work is a first and a last line, and this is the spring of its action. Of course, there's a journey, and inside that journey, an implicit voyage through the underworld. There's a bridge made of boats, a carp, a carp stuffed with flowers, a comic dispute among sweetmeat vendors, a digression on shadows, men clapping in fields to scare away crows, an unending list of warships, the Unternehmen, the Impresa, the Muyarchi, Vieklam, the Presencia Bjortsvo, the Indarka, the Enterprise, L'Entreprise, Entrepreno, one could go on. But by now, all the characters have turned into swallows and bank as one flock in the sky. That is, all except one. That's how we finally learn who the hero was all along. Weary and old, he sits on a rock and watches his friends fly one by one out of the song then turns back to the journey they all began long ago, keeping the river to his right. <clears throat> so I'll read uh, uh, something kind of new um, that I've been working on for a while that I read from the last time I was here. It's going to be, it's the beginning of a new book, I think. Uh, it's called Readings in World Literature. I won't explain too much about it. It's about kind of a crazy year, you'll see, uh, that I had. Um, and there's an epigraph. Time is a great teacher, they say. 
pity of it is she kills all her students. One. <clears throat> During a recent leave of absence from my life, I came across an inscription on a historical prism of Ashurbanipal that I found to be somewhat disquieting. Of an enemy whose remains he had abused in a manner that does not bear repeating here, this most scholarly of Mesopotamian kings pronounces, I made him more dead than he was before. Prisms of this sort were often buried in the foundations of government buildings and therefore intended to be read by gods, but not men. Somewhere in the maze of carols and stacks, I thought I could hear a low dial tone humming without end. In Ashurbanipal's library, there's a poem written on clay that corrects various com commonly held errors regarding the world of the dead. Contrary to the accounts of Mulian, Odysseus, and Quasi-Benefo et al., it is not customarily permitted to visit the underworld. No, the underworld visits you. Two. Tunneling through sleep, the underworld visits a secondary character. Closing the door to the dream behind him, this ill-fated figure, sometimes described as the protagonist's double, notices that the inside bolt is thick with dust. He passes a heap of discarded crowns. At the end of the corridor, he arrives at a registration desk. There was the queen of the underworld, the goddess Ereshkigal. Before her crouched Beletseri, the clerk of the underworld, holding a tablet, reading aloud in her presence. She raised her head. She saw me. Who was it fetched this man here? Who was it brought this fellow here? Cuneiform tablets describing the Mesopotamian house of dust frequently refer to a clerk who must enter the names of those scheduled to die each day. Little is known of this indefatigable figure. First, she has only one inexhaustible theme. Second, she writes for an ideal reader, the Lady of the Dead, who perpetually tears at her hair with fingers like pickaxes. Third, she writes in a timeless form, which allows for considerable prosodic variation en route to a fixed conclusion. <clears throat> Three. Some fragments from Ashurbanipal's library may have fallen from an upper story as the royal palace burned, while others were fractured by weather, the plow, war, or archaeology itself. In the twilight of the last millennium, however, one buoyant Assyriologist predicted that the holes in this poem will undoubtedly be filled by further discoveries of tablets in the ruined mounds of Mesopotamia. Insert citation here. But there are so many holes. The hole in which the hero and his friend pray for safe passage to the cedar forest. The hole containing an account of the friend's pitiable death throes the hole punched through the bottom of the burnt-out Humvee, the hole where the grave used to be, 
I'm afraid recent developments in the region make Professor George's prognostications seem less than likely. For the time being, this house of dust, older than Hades, is in pieces all over creation. Four. Already it is beginning to seem that I cannot avoid the subject of this nation's interminable occupation of the Republic of Iraq. But I would have preferred to write something along the lines of a poetic essay on comparative underworlds. For the past few years, I've taught a course titled Readings in World Literature, which has frequently proven to be a disappointment, both to myself and to the students, some in headscarves, some occasionally dressed in fatigues, who've registered for this seminar in order to satisfy their humanities requirement. It confirmed my hatred of epics and reaffirmed my faith that I will never study medieval literature. The instructor is fairly intelligent and enthusiastic about his brand of writing, but is unreceptive, even intolerant, of anything that is not a poem or a poem in prose form. These are real. Made me question the value of higher learning. It can so easily become detached from real life. It occurred to me that by writing about teaching, I might learn something. There would be assignments, a midterm, and a final examination, followed by some sort of internal unraveling and the sound of rain falling on rooftops at night. I needed to find my footing in the order of things. And because I know almost nothing about the world, I decided to work my way up from below. Five, Hume 101, Introduction to the Underworld, cross-listed with Complet. In this course, students will be ferried across the river of sorrow, subsist on a diet of clay, weigh their hearts against a feather on the infernal balance, and ascend a viewing pagoda in order to gaze upon their homelands until empty of, of all emotion. Texts will include the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Mayan Book of the Dead, the Ethiopian Book of the Dead, and Muriel Rukeyser's Book of the Dead. The goals of the course are to introduce students to the posthumous disciplinary regimes of various cultures and to help them develop the communication skills that are crucial for success in today's global marketplace. All readings in English. Requirements include the death of the student, an oral lamentation, and a final paper. I'll skip a section here. Seven. I promised my wife that I would call Dr. Song today. After putting the baby down for her nap, and slipping outside for a smoke, I lifted the receiver. The sound it emitted, which I've heard without pause countless times before, seemed to me otherworldly now, like someone's finger playing upon the wet rim of a crystal bowl in a derelict theater from before the wars. Seven. 
I can't say how long I stood there listening. It may have been seconds or seasons. The rings of Saturn kept turning in their groove. For reasons beyond me, <clears throat> my unit on Dante was not scheduled until the following quarter. I dialed 1-800-INFERNO, and before the first ring, a woman's voice answered in heavily accented English. Is it you? I think so, I replied. Outside my window, the honey locusts sprinkled their pale spinning leaves. Focusing on one as it fell seemed to slow the general descent. O oh, creature, gracious and good, traversing the dusky element to visit us who stained the world with blood, the woman recited, as if reading against her will from a prepared text. I could hear rain trickling in a gutter spout on the other end of the line. Please, remove my name from your list, I said, and return the receiver to its cradle. Eight. While outlining the requirements for our first critical essay of the term, I notice a hand rising tentatively in the classroom's farthest corner. What if I'm ideologically opposed to revision, asks the red-headed boy in an orgy of one t-shirt. <clears throat> a city bus unloads its pageantry just outside the window. A handful of sparrows erupts from the equestrian statue on the quad. I remember Sun Tzu's advice to humanities instructors, which I review on index cards on the eve of each new term. Hold out baits to entice the enemy. Feign disorder and crush him. What exactly is your ideology, I ask, mentally stroking my beard. I'm a Zen Naxalite crypto-objectivist, replied my interlocutor. How about you? Removing the stray bran flake that I've discovered, too late, lodged in my beard, I have no choice but to improvise. Pro-recycling? Anti-genocide? A voice from beyond my peripheral vision says, you're nothing but a pseudo-Kantian neoliberal mirage with meta-narcissistic tendencies. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Nine. A window onto the purgatorial cosmology of late imperial China may be found on page 26 of Leon Uyghur's Folklore Chinoise Moderne, Cien Cien, Imprimerie de la Mission Catholique, 1909. Throughout his 40 years of residence in the Celestial Empire, this unsung Jesuit sinologist labored to dismantle what he once called the whole unbearable grid into which we have forcibly cantonized God's children. Contemporary Anglophone readers, however, must do without an English version of Father Uyghur's folklore. I don't want any more English translations, he writes in a letter to his superiors, dated 3 February 1929. English benefits Protestants, and is not my goal to do so. 
Thus, the strange tale of Chen from Hu Chu Fu remains largely unknown in this land. But if you'll pardon my French, which is damnable, I confess, I thought I might venture the following rough English rendition for purposes of instruction. Draft only. Please do not circulate. 10. In Hu Chu Fu, the magistrate's assistant Chen was taking a nap in his study. Suddenly, a motorized airport staircase appeared and beckoned him to follow. It led Chen down a path hidden by rustling thickets of bamboo to a clearing where, on a high pedestal, an enormous mirror waited in the moonlight. Regard what you once were, said the small orbiting object or motorized airport staircase, I'm not sure which, in your previous life. Looking into the mirror, Chen saw a man in a quaint cap and scarlet shoes, dressed like a scholar from the past. Now see, said the small orbiting object or motorized airport staircase or vassal nation or moon, what you were in the life before that one. Chen looked again into the mirror and saw a high official in old Ming costume, black cap, red robe, belt with jade buckle, black boots. Just then, a servant entered the clearing, prostrated himself before Chen, and said to him, Don't you recognize me? I was your servant in Tatung Fu. But then again, that was over 200 years ago. With that said, he handed a scroll to Chen. Que c'est si? Chen asked. Why si? said the servant. I think I may skip a few sections, but basically you get the idea that this is just a bad translation. Um, and Chen is called down to go to the underworld um, and um, answer for war crimes that were committed under his uh, command in a previous life. Could happen to anyone, right? Um, 13. Our nanny called in sick yesterday, and I stayed home with the baby, watching a tree squirrel tuck twigs and trash into a wreck of a nest outside the kitchen window, instead of continuing with my translation. I love eyebrows, announced Mira, crumpling her bib. I love napkins. I love upstairs. On the radio, a program about efforts to restore various archaeological sites in and around the provincial capital of Al-Hila, where the ancient Mesopotamian city of Babylon once stood. Speaking through an interpreter, a government official described how the 2,600-year-old paving stones of the ancient city's processional way had been crushed under the treads of M1 Abrams tanks. A heliport had been constructed in the ruins. The remains of a ziggurat, which some scholars believe may be the original site of the Tower of Babel, however, appeared to be largely intact for the time being. I love flowers. I love fire, Mira continued. I love foreheads, too. At some point in the day, Dr. Song left a message for me, but I couldn't make anything of it. 
Later that evening, I looked in the bathroom mirror to see if I could discern any trace of infractions from a previous life. All I could see was the chipped and tarnished surface of the mirror, flickering almost imperceptibly. I looked again. This time, to my relief, I saw a man dressed like a scholar from the recent past. Vintage cardigan, thinning hair, an untenured affect of worry beyond repair. I love forks. I love giraffes. I love handles, too. Fifteen. Melanoma. From the ancient Greek verb melaino, to blacken, combined with the nominalizing suffix ma, which indicates process or action. Hence, pragma, action or occurrence, from prato, to do, or poema, poem, from poieo, to make. These days, it's obligatory for survivors' narratives to muse upon the etymologies of their various illnesses and medical treatments. It lends grandeur to the experience of leafing through Red Book in an empty examination room while dressed in a paper gown that won't draw closed around the back. But I cannot refrain from wondering at how a description, black, becomes an action to blacken, which in turn becomes a thing. Melanoma, a darkening. There's a whole grammar and metaphysics to this black traffic. The root points backwards to the Sanskrit mala, dirt or filth, and forward to our modern English melancholy. Uh, so I'll also skip a section or two here uh, to get to the end of this uh, part. Uh, there's more of the translation where Chen is actually vindicated um, for his crimes in his previous life. Um, 16. I'll read this in one more section and then maybe a poem from uh, Voyager. 16. The odds are good, Dr. Song tells me in his office. Still, he blinks too much as he answers my wife's questions about this perplexing case. Melanoma is exceedingly rare among individuals of my dusky extraction and virtually non-existent among younger members of this population. You're a medical miracle, joked one nurse before I went under, but not the good kind. At least the tests show no spread to the neighboring lymph nodes, which lowers one's mortality rate within three years to roughly one in ten. Not bad odds. I resolve not to make too much of this matter in the days to come. But the complimentary brochure that I take from the rack as I exit the reception area says I mustn't make too little of it either. In this respect, my condition is not unlike the war. I don't want to make too much of it in my ambient transactional order. But I don't want to make too little of it either. 17. <clears throat> the judge ordered the motorized moon to accompany Chen home. 
They retraced their steps through the pathway hidden by bamboo and emerged into the clearing with the mirror once more. There, his old servant congratulated Chen on his acquittal. Come, said the spirit with a smile, and see what you were in this life. Chen looked in the mirror and saw himself dressed as an assistant magistrate of the Tsing dynasty. Now see what you're going to become. At these words, Chen was so convulsed by horror that he awoke, bathed in great beads of sweat. He was stretched out in his study, his whole family weeping around him. Somebody told him that he had lain dead to the world all day and night, the area around his heart alone retaining some faint trace of human warmth. Suspended throughout the court of the otherworldly judge, Chen had noticed a number of intersecting horizontal and vertical banners arranged into a crossword puzzle of infernal precepts. He could make out none but the following. The court of the dead makes exceptions for no one. When the waters fall, the stones appear. Thus everything is revealed in its time. All is counted on the infinite abacus. So, um, I should say also that uh, I, you know, uh, this is obviously autobiographical, uh, but I'm I'm kind of clear of uh, the illness kind of thing because people always ask me afterwards, and I'm like I always forget to say that I'm okay. Um, uh, so I'll just read a few um, aphorisms from uh, from this book, Voyager, uh, before closing. Uh, I think uh, I might get in under the clock here. No. Okay. Ten uh, little uh, statements, sentences about the world uh, that I composed by erasing language from the memoirs of Kurt Waldheim, which is a long story. We can talk about that some other time. Uh, but if you don't like them, it's fine because it's all—it's not my language; it's his. Is, is. There is no distinction. One. He records his name on a gold medallion. Two. The philosopher must say is. The world is legion. The self is a suffering form. Is, is. Waves rise and fall, but the sea remains. Thank you.